It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lordson. I received a really wonderful newsletter from an author named Kathleen Smith, who writes on topics like anxiety, insecurities, and uh, she's a doctor of some sort. I don't, I don't know off the top of my head what. I imagine she might be a psychologist or a therapist, and I've really been enjoying a lot of her work. The title of this email I received is 25 Ways We Use Distance to Manage Anxiety. And it's really fascinating. So I'm actually going to read directly from this email. And again, this is coming from Kathleen Smith. I will link to her website and her wonderful book, which is called Everything Isn't Terrible. I haven't read it yet, but it's on my reading list. So I assume that it's good. I assume that it's wonderful based on her work. (laughs) But we will link to that in the show notes at wellevator.com. If you haven't visited our website yet, it is spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And every single episode of this show that we do, we have notes and you can read the transcripts and you can get all the different resources that we mentioned, including Kathleen's book. So her email started off saying that distancing is perhaps the quickest way to bind anxiety. We move across the country from our parents. We stay late at work to avoid our spouse. Or we never share our real beliefs with friends who might disagree. It's also why many of us, initially energized by all those Zoom calls in early COVID days, have begun to internally withdraw from other humans. Physical and emotional distance are adaptive. We wouldn't engage in them if they didn't help us manage our anxiety. But distance has its price. We lose the opportunity to build real person-to-person relationships and to work on our own maturity when we automatically withdraw. When we let ourselves choose immediate calmness, we often forsake our best thinking about how to be in relationship with other humans. And she provides 25 examples of this that I really found helpful for me to contemplate how I use distancing and how that showed up in my life in the past and in the present day. So I'd love to go through each of these things and discuss them, Jason. But before I do, do you have any commentary on on what I've read thus far? Well, I think it it highlights something that I've been emotionally dealing with, not just during COVID, but I think trying to strike the energetic balance, Whitney, of naturally being an extrovert. And I've noticed you and I have been to so many events together, ones that you've spoken at, I've spoken at, we've both spoken at a handful of events together. And what initially comes up for me as you're reading this is that there is sort of um, a switch that gets pressed in me that when I feel like I've given too much energetically and I start to kind of power down, my sound effect for that is pew, 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 pew. Like I can feel (laughs) my internal battery kind of winding down or getting near the danger zone. I've lately felt 
just really kind of exhausted and I can't really quite figure out why. I was having a discussion with my mom about the nature of being an empath this morning, which we could probably get to a little bit later on in this episode. But what comes up for me is that I noticed that I have been trying to, for lack of a better term, protect my energy and create different boundaries because I feel like when I'm already kind of exhausted or I've already given a lot, whether that's a speaking appearance or I've been doing a lot of volunteer work over this particular five, six month COVID period, however many months it's been, I noticed to bring it all back to your original point that I will distance myself emotionally and socially from people because I feel like I'm going to get drained even more. And I've noticed that if I don't create a boundary and I don't take some precautions to distance myself, people without intending to will drain me because I've allowed them to. So this is something that's really relevant for me right now as I'm setting energetic boundaries to not allow myself to get too depleted. Right. But I guess the part that I'm not fully clear on, and I'm curious if it's clear to you, Jason, is exactly what she means by this distancing, binding anxiety. I think my interpretation of that is that we're doing some of these things that we're going to dive into today to give us that immediate calmness as she describes it. Yeah. But yet as a result of that, I guess it, those things are trying to help us manage our anxiety, but by distancing ourselves, we're actually binding it. So we're, hmm. I think if I'm interpreting this correctly, because she keeps saying, how do you use distance to bind anxiety in your relationship? So to me, that's like through the act of distance, and we're talking not just physical distance, but emotional distance, that that is binding anxiety within our relationships. Well, I'm curious what the word binding means because right, me bind, too. Bind, binding, I think of you know something that is, I don't know, sutured together, something when you're bound to something, you're tied to it, you're strapped to it, you're emboldened or, you know, when I think of being bound to something, especially anxiety, I don't know. It's an interesting description, isn't it? That I ha- yeah. That's part of what's in- fascinating about her work is yeah. I haven't really reflected on this before. Yeah, that word choice in particular is fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to dive a little bit deeper because when I already feel like I'm having anxiety, which I've been feeling a lot of lately, is that I feel that sometimes people want my support, help, perspective, feedback on things, whatever that is. And I feel like if I give that, I feel more anxious because it's more on my plate. So Mm -hmm. I'm very curious what she means by binding because I often feel that by distancing or putting certain boundaries with people, even my loved ones, not even just in a business context, that I'm able to deal with my own anxiety and not hit the overwhelm button. Because if I'm already feeling anxious and then I start saying yes to, oh, could you do this? And could you hold space for me? And I just broke up with my boyfriend and this and that, you know, friends kind of text you and email you and you get business emails, it's kind of a whole smorgasbord of people wanting your attention and time and energy, that will push me over the edge. I want to know what she means by binding because I feel like it's a coping mechanism for me that I'm able to deal with my anxiety better by distancing myself, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm wondering, is it is binding being used to say that it's helping you cope or is it being used in that it's not beneficial. You know what I mean? Yeah. I just pulled up a few articles online and how one on psychology today talks about 
how binders don't feel anxiety because they've learned early on how to cut it off before it builds. They do this by keeping their world small. Their lives are run on rigid routines, rigid thinking. They dismiss, assume, and they will screen out anything that could possibly cause anxiety. But that's so much about control, it seems like. Yeah, that sounds to me like that's an attempt to achieve non-disturbance in one's life. Mm -hmm. Like if I just control all of the circumstances and create rigid mechanisms for my behavior and my routines, and I mean, it sounds like ultra, ultra Mm A-type mixed in maybe with some kind of OCD, maybe, that if I just control and manipulate and handle all of the circumstances and they're just so and very exacting, then I will inoculate myself against anxiety, but that's impossible. Right. You can't achieve non-disturbance in life. You know, it's like, oh, if I just put up a wall and a security system and, you know, barbed wire and have, you know, guard dogs and have weaponry, like, I'll, you know, I'll be safe and secure. I mean, this is kind of like the, the illusion of some of our human thinking is that if we just have all the mechanisms in place, will be perfectly safe and perfectly non-disturbed. But that's a complete illusion in the world. That doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's explore some of these different ways that Kathleen talks about how we can use distance to manage our anxiety. So number one is this one hits home because I've identified this in a lot of other people. And this is when you become very busy at work to avoid your family. I mean, I'm, I've am i talked about this in other episodes. I'm very sensitive to the word busy. I don't like that word. I, I have a negative connotation with that word. I feel like it's used very um, superficially in a lot of ways. Like it's a kind of catch-all term and it doesn't often have a lot of depth to it. So I've tried to find alternatives to the word busy just so I can more accurately explain what my schedule's like, right? Uh, but in this case, busyness is interesting because I do think a lot of people will become busy in order to avoid family or friends. And it's like a coping mechanism. If I'm busy, then I don't have to deal with certain things. It's it's often used to numb or to avoid. Right. Yeah, that sounds really familiar. I mean, it sounds endemic to a lot of our society, really. You know, that if if I know that I have specific emotional issues or traumas or things that need to be healed, it seems, and I've done this too, where it's sort of like people like, oh yeah, I'm aware, I'm aware I need to work on that. I'm aware I need to heal that. But awareness isn't action and awareness isn't healing. The healing process or the process, I suppose, of going into some of the quote, darker places inside our psyche or the places that need more attention, love and healing awareness doesn't create healing. Awareness just shows you what you need to work on. But I feel that for so many factors in our culture, wit, we've talked a lot about the hustle mentality and toxic capitalism and toxic wokeness and, and kind of the intersection of all those things that a lot of people who I think appear to be spiritual or working on themselves or claim to be woke, they're actually doing a lot of bypassing. And I think consciously choosing to be overworked and choosing the word busy is a way to bypass all that. It's not actually doing the work. It's just delaying it. Absolutely. The second is using alcohol or drugs to avoid sober conversations. And it's interesting for me because 
I've never been super drawn to alcohol or drugs. I've been fascinated by them, curious of them. I like experimenting with them. It's a take it or leave it thing for me, at least in the terms of my traditional viewpoint on drugs. (laughs) There's a lot of things like coffee could be considered a drug in some ways, but I'm talking about like marijuana or ecstasy or, or mushrooms or any of those type of things that would fall into that drug category and some more extreme versions, cocaine and heroin and all that stuff, right? And it's interesting because we've talked about this in the past, how much has changed in the world with marijuana. And we have a whole episode about CBD. And I think we talked about marijuana in that episode too, and how much things have changed during our lifetimes and how I think the relationship to marijuana is is shifting a lot in our country. I remember before it was legal in the U.S. when I, I was studying abroad in the Netherlands and I was observing how casual the relationship to marijuana was and and actually with alcohol, too, because I don't even know if they have like the strict age lim- uh, requirements that we do in the U.S. I don't know if there's I think there's like a general like you should be over 18, but I don't know if they enforce it at all in most European countries. So it's interesting to see like how drugs and alcohol, I wonder, is it just a matter of avoiding or is it simply that they've become kind of um, they're not allowed, they're banned or they're um, taboo. So I think some people are drawn to those things as a way to rebel. But I also do think that they do play a role in conversations. And, you know, Jason and I just got back from a, a physical distanced birthday party that a friend of ours had you know, alcohol is like a big thing that people use when they go to parties. It's like, okay, I can avoid having sober conversations because I don't feel comfortable talking to a stranger at a party. So I'll get drunk or I'll do some drugs. And that way I feel more comfortable. And I think this is so commonplace in the US and some other countries that we don't think that much about it unless somebody has uh, an addiction. I think it's different. But if there's no addiction at play, then it's just kind of taken as no big deal, right? Like, oh, it's no big deal that you're drunk. It's no big deal that you're doing drugs. But in a way that if you look at it, are, is this just a coping mechanism for dealing with anxiety? And, and especially when it comes to conversations with people, like, is it actually working in your benefit? There's somebody that I had started speaking with a friend of mine more frequently through text message during COVID. And it kind of felt like maybe a loneliness or having feeling the sense of having more time on our hands led us to converse more frequently. But I noticed that this person seemed to want to have more conversations when drunk, like it would come up a lot. And it came to this point where I thought, huh, like, is this person only reaching out when they're under the influence of something? Do they feel more confident to talk? Do they feel more comfortable talking? And then the problem for me is that now I feel a little bit uncomfortable with that. I feel like, oh, well, do you only think to talk to me when when you're under the influence of something? Or do you only feel comfortable talking to me when you're under the influence? And then I started to suspect like every time I hear from this person, is it because that person feels more comfortable to talk when drinking, you know? And that's something I've been reflecting on too. And then noticing my own relationship with alcohol and drugs. Again, 
I don't feel like I need them to have conversations. And I don't think you do either, Jason. It doesn't, it's not like when you get to a party, the first thing you do is drink. In fact, it's rare for you to drink. Yeah. And so, but you're also extroverted as you talked about. So you, maybe it's because you feel a little bit more comfortable. You don't feel like you need that crutch. It's true. Yeah. I I mean, the word social lubricant gets brought up a lot with alcohol in particular, maybe less with drugs, but definitely with alcohol consumption, it's a quote, social lubricant. And I've, in rare cases, like maybe on a couple of first dates over the course of my life, but it's really rare that I'll be in a new social environment with a new person or new people and feel like there's something in me that's like, oh man, you should go get a drink. It's kind of the opposite where I prefer to be, I don't know, uh, fully engaged in a way without it. And you know, with the example you gave today of going to this socially distanced birthday party, I didn't feel the desire to do it. You know, I mean, also the fact that it was what, 111 degrees there. It was like, eh, last thing I want to do is dehydrate myself. But I also think though, there's alcohol in particular, this is a side tangent, was just never my drug. When I really was singing in a lot of bands in my 20s, and it was kind of the culture to go to the bar or the club and play a show and drink. I would drink a lot more then, but it was never a thing where I was like, oh man, I should watch my alcohol consumption. My father had an alcohol problem, which harangued him and persisted the course of his life, but it was never my drug, you know? I never had to worry like, oh God, am I getting addicted to alcohol? Some people, it's very much is a problem, but it's just never been my drug of choice, I think is the long answer, Whitney. But you don't feel a need to use it. I'm curious... How do you feel when other people seemingly use drugs or alcohol as a way to feel more comfortable having conversations with you? Does it affect you? I think it depends on their state of being and how their mannerisms and their behavior follows the consumption of alcohol or any drug. You know, it's it's a situation where a lot of the times if I go, and this isn't happening now, but when <laughs> when I used to go out to bars or clubs or or go out with friends, pretty often I would not order alcohol. It's it's also because of some of the health issues I've been dealing with with um with my gout and some kidney issues and things like that. I, I really can't have alcohol or it's going to have some really negative effects. But my point is to answer your question that I don't know, when someone gets like maybe a little too fucked up and I'm stone sober and they're like, Yeah, do you remember that one time when like I babysat your cats and you were on tour and like I was going to like shave your cat Claudia and give her a lion cut, but I decided not to, but I almost did. Is that a real thing? No, I'm making this up. (laughs) When someone gets so blitzed that their state of being is like annoying and hard to deal with, depending on the person and their, again, their mannerisms, their behavior, their state of being, if someone's really drunk or really high and I'm stone sober, sometimes it's really annoying to deal with them. Yeah. And it's not meant, this isn't meant to be a judgment, I suppose. No. It's just, just to reflect on like how it feels, you yeah. know? And, and I think this is something to consider is that when it comes to drugs and alcohol and how dependent we can be on them to avoid sober conversations. And I, I think my heart goes out to people because There are times where I've had a drink at a party because I felt a little anxious 
And I, I can completely relate to that. It's not my go-to, but but sometimes I'm like, oh yeah, <laughs> like I have to actually consciously think about it because a lot of times alcohol is more of a taste thing for me than it is for a feeling. But it it is fascinating to observe that and how some people I feel like can hardly go to a social gathering without depending on, on drugs or alcohol. And I think it's something worth examining, right? Because like, again, it comes down to how are you managing your anxiety and how are you distancing yourself from people? Yeah. I also wanted to say this with that. I think intention really is a big part of this, right? Because if we take, for example, some of the the drugs you mentioned, you know, alcohol, marijuana, maybe some of the psychedelic drugs, that's a different category in my mind, or even coffee. If I overdo something, or I choose to use a substance to change my state and I'm doing it to try and escape or I'm doing it to try and not face reality or I'm doing it to one of those kind of reasons, the energy of that intention really shapes the experience for me. And also, as an example, the use of alcohol, right, is I remember the last time I got like drunk, like on the floor, face in the toilet, throwing up. I remember very clearly the last time that happened. It was 2004. I was living with a my girlfriend at the time, and we had like a townhouse condo in in a suburb of Detroit. And I'd gone out to see a music show and hang out with some other bands and and all that. And I remember I just got, I mean, blasted, you know, like beyond. And I came home and I was just projectile vomiting and was you know crumpled up in a ball in front of the toilet and. I remember saying, I'm never going to do this again. And I never got that drunk again because it got to the point where I I went so far beyond the enjoyment factor, Whitney. You talked about the taste and the experience of these things. I love a glass of wine. I love to have like a really wonderful joint or share marijuana with someone or or on the other level, you know, have a, have a transformative experience with psychedelic drugs. But if I overdo something, I've noticed that the overdoing of something, whatever that is for my body the enjoyment factor goes down. It's like, it's an opposite corollary of like, if I overdo it, I know that my enjoyment of the experience is going to tank. It's going to go down as a result of that. Right. And and I guess coming back to this point of how we feel around other people, there's like the two sides of it is even you describing your girlfriend's reaction to you being that drunk, you know, it is tough sometimes when you're the sober one or you're not as drunk or you're not as high or whatever. Yeah. And how that plays a role in your dynamic. (laughs) Actually, it came up in this um, TV show I watched the other day called Rami on Hulu. And in one of the episodes, the character, I think the whole show, I'm only like two or three episodes in, but the whole show is seemingly based around He's Muslim and and dating other Muslims. He's kind of like on his hunt, his search for his Muslim wife and what that's like to be. I think he's a millennial and to live in this kind of modern United States as a millennial trying to date and trying to figure out your relationship with religion. It's, It's really interesting. In one of the episodes, this girl that he likes invites him to her party and he is given ecstasy. Somebody offers him ecstasy. Oh, okay. And so they didn't slip it in his drink. He knew. No, he no, was, no. Okay. Got it. Got it. <laughs> they gave, handed some pills out and he said no. And the girl that he was interested in was really disappointed. And she's like, 
well, I just took some. And if you don't take some, then we're not going to be at the same level and we're not going to connect as well. And she's like trying to make this whole case for taking it. And he's battling like, well, what do I do? You know, I really like this girl and I want to spend time with her, but I don't want to do drugs. And I feel like I'm being pressured into it. Plus, like the other point is that she wants him to do it because she wants to be able to connect with him at that level. And I just thought it was kind of interesting how that can happen and our dynamics and how, you know, drugs are such a personal decision. But when you're kind of peer pressured, how our relationship can change and how that might actually distance ourselves from people just by saying no to something. And same thing with alcohol, too. You know, like we probably have all had that experience where we're the only sober person at a party or at a gathering of any sort. And it's just you kind of feel a little awkward sometimes, unless, again, you're abstaining because of addiction. I think that's completely different versus like just choosing not to. And that feeling of like, oh, like, am I missing out? Am I not able to connect with these people in the same way? Or even the times when people get really drunk and it just feels like everyone's making a fool of themselves and you start to observe people in a different light because you're not at that same level mentally as they are and uh, or not mentally, but like in that same state. It's just a, it's fascinating we could certainly go down the rabbit hole of that, but we've got a lot more on this list to, to discuss. So number three on this list of ways we use distance to manage anxiety is moving across the country to avoid your family. And this one's really oh, interesting wow. because we have both. Wow. I mean, I literally moved across the country from one coast to another. And, and Jason, you, you did it. You're like 2000 miles away, I think, from Detroit. Yeah. You know, we both have pretty good relationships. Well, you have a really good relationship with your mom. I don't think that's the reason that I chose to live in Los Angeles all these years when my family is in, in Massachusetts and New York. But it is interesting to reflect on, you know, at some level, like, why did I make that decision to be so far away? I, mean, I think for both of us, Jason, you've talked a lot about your decision in multiple episodes. For me, it was mostly about career. And there was something about LA that really appealed to me. I was thinking about this the other day, how I wondered how much of LA has just been like constructed to draw people into this part of the country. You know, is it kind of like a capitalist thing? Like come here and, and make money for our, our state and our city, you know, like they, LA just has this like, it's like moths to the flame. It's like, come, yeah. come. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even if you look really? at social media, like so many social media influencers live in Los Angeles or New York. It's like one of the two. They both, both cities have that draw and like the mystique. It's yeah, a mystique. Exactly. For and sure. Mystique is a great word for it. And how we associate it with like, you know, our dreams. Like both Jason and I had this similar experience growing up of like, I'm going to move to Hollywood one day, you know? And so like just moving here felt like an accomplishment and ticking something off a box. And, and I actually really enjoy LA. I could see myself leaving, but I'm not in as much of a hurry as Jason is to get out of here. <laughs> but, but I guess this idea of moving across the country to avoid your family is interesting. I don't think that's why I moved is my big point. And it doesn't seem like that's why you moved either, Jason, but I don't want to speak for you there. Do you think there's any truth to that for you or have you witnessed this in, in people that you know? I don't think it had anything to do with my family relationship or dynamics at all. 
because beyond my mom, if I look at my extended relationships with, say, my closest cousins, my closest aunts and uncles, I think I've mentioned this, as you you alluded to, Whitney, in a previous episode, that the great majority of my family is still either in the city of Detroit or the Detroit metropolitan area. There's one cousin of mine who lives in the Bay Area, uh, my cousin Matt, and then my cousin Mike, last I knew, is up or was up in the Pacific Northwest. So with few exceptions, uh, my mom's side of the family and a lot of my dad are in Detroit. And it wasn't for me a deciding factor to be like, I need to get away from them. It was more that I really felt like I had, I suppose, artistically, creatively, professionally leveraged and experienced all of the things I wanted to in Detroit by my, when did I, well, originally I left and I lived in Chicago for three years and then I came back to Detroit. But when I left, left, I was in my mid twenties. It was a feeling of like, I'm over it. It wasn't like I'm over you guys. I deeply love my family. And one of the hardest things for me with in being far away is being not able to see my family more than a handful of times a year. And as my mom ages and my family ages, that's becoming more of a, a complicated consideration. You know, as my family ages and goes on, particularly my mom, I don't want to be this far from her. And it's all to say that my motivations for leaving were not about avoiding my family or escaping them. It was more, as you said, a professional decision, a financial decision, wanting to expand my artistry, wanting to build my career. And I just felt like the ceiling for that in Detroit was so low that I was like, oh, there's the ceiling. I need to get the fuck out. So it was more of a professional, artistic, creative decision. Yeah. And it's fascinating to reflect on these things and just kind of look within yourself to see if there's any truth within it. You know, <laughs> like I wonder too about that. And it's hard sometimes to examine yourself and wonder, maybe I am doing it to avoid my family in some way or another. You know, I love my family on, on a conscious level and I, I look forward to spending time with them, but I also look forward to coming back to Los Angeles after a certain point. I, I also, part of it is my family lives in a part of the country that I don't necessarily want to live in long term. So it's interesting. Part of the reason I want to do this episode was for us to explore it, but for the listener to reflect on it themselves. And there's nothing wrong with any of this. If you are busy to have at work to avoid your family or you're using drugs or alcohol to avoid sober conversations or moving across the country to avoid your family. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just interesting to examine it and see if that's playing a role with creating that distance and how that may impact feelings of anxiousness. On the fourth element of ways that we use to distance to manage anxiety is um only talking about sports or the weather. <laughs> <laughs> Very safe I, subjects. Very safe. <laughs> it is interesting. Sports, maybe not, depending who you're talking to, right? Because if if you're like, oh, man, yeah, the Lions, and they're like, I fucking hate the Lions. You know, if you're talking to a Bears fan, I'm getting into the nitty gritty. But generally, those are safe subjects, yeah. <laughs> I think this is kind of an overarching, you know, they're using that as a, kind of cliche examples of of superficial things we'll talk about in Los Angeles. We'll talk about traffic. And that actually reminds me with my grandparents, my dad's parents who have passed away, they one of the kind of sure th subject matters that would come up with them was if you went to visit them in New Jersey, 
the first thing that you discuss is like, well, how, oh, you made good time. Like how long it took to get to their house, you know, driving there from Massachusetts and, and how, when I would call them on the phone, there would always kind of be these standard things that we would talk about. And so it's interesting how sometimes we don't have deep connections with people. We end up like talking about the same things over and over again. And it's interesting for me because on one end, I like having those superficial conversations with people because it's easy. But on another level, I don't look forward to those type of conversations because they do feel so superficial and I want to get deeper with people. And it feels like I don't matter to somebody or I'm not connected to somebody when I'm having superficial conversations about the weather or sports. I agree with that. And I think there's also a permutation of that wit where when we go to industry events, the version of that kind of questioning of the weather slash sports is like, so what have you been up to? What's new? What are you working on? And it's like, <laughs> there's a part of me that dread is too hard of a word, but whenever things resume again and we start going to trade shows and industry events and conferences and the things that we, I suppose, for lack of a better word, normally or typically do in a year, whenever that resumes in whatever form, my consternation is from those conversations, which seems to be, again, a kind of a mutation or permutation of this kind of engagement with someone where it's like, mm, I don't really want to talk about what I'm up to or what I'm working on. Like, hey, survived. It's going to be like, we survived COVID. You know, like, great. <laughs> I don't know. Does that irk you? Because it irks the shit out of me sometimes. Whereas in moments, I almost expect it and I prepare myself for those superficial, like, what are you up to? What are you doing? What's new? What projects are you working on? But other oh, times yeah. I'm just like, I just want to walk away. It's nothing personal against them. It's the archetype of that insincere, distanced, completely not inauthentic, but there's no depth to that interaction. And as a result, I often want to just like go in the corner and just be like, I don't want to have this interaction. Oh, for sure. I can completely relate to that. And and I think that's sometimes why I will avoid social engagements because I'm just like, oh, I really don't want to have to deal with this. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think that's part of it too, is we can think about these things. Like, are we having those superficial communications to avoid going deep with somebody? Like, is it a way for us to A, make things easy or B, distance ourselves with people? Like maybe if I talk about superficial things, nobody will really know who I am or I don't have to get into the hard parts of my life or I don't have to put effort into things. The fifth thing on this list is really interesting to me. And this is about canceling on people at the last minute to feel instant relief. Wow. Huh. Canceling on people at the last minute to get instant relief. That's super interesting. We referenced this a little bit in our episode. What was it about? It was the episode about where I talked about um, getting stood up or getting ghosted. It was the ghosting episode. Thank you, my brain. Uh, we will link to that episode in the show notes at wellevator.com. Our website, again, is W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. We did a whole episode on ghosting culture and the dynamics of relationships. I don't really have, Whitney, anyone in my life that has a, I suppose, a reputation for doing this, but it is fascinating to me because I've seen memes regarding this where people will post like funny things about like tendencies of introverts that like, 
I want you to invite me. I'll probably say no, but I want you to invite me anyway. And it's like, it's not necessarily the same thing, but the whole canceling at the last minute, that is a fascinating distancing mechanism. And it's one that I don't have a lot of experience with. I haven't experienced that a lot in my life. I've been stood up. I have been canceled on, but I can't say that I have anyone in my life that is like a chronic demonstrator of that tendency. That's like, but I've, I've talked to friends that are like, oh yeah, Kathleen or Susie, you know, she's always canceling at the last minute. It's like, well, do you want to have a conversation with her about that? So do you have anyone in your life that, or anyone in the past that demonstrated this kind of behavior? Oh yeah. <laughs> I know. Really? This, oh yeah. This oh, comes interesting. up a lot. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's not always, I mean, especially right now, it's hard to think of examples, Okay, but it could be, it sometimes shows up in ways like never being able to get someone to make plans. I mean, I can think oh, of- Oh yeah, that's super avoidant. Yep. I right. mean, there's one person, an example I'm thinking of right now where it's been years that I've been able to see this person. And what's interesting, this came up very recently for us because I, I found out this person is going to move across the country <laughs> to get closer to their family, which is the opposite we were talking about. And I feel really sad about that because I haven't seen this person in a little while and, and I'd really love to connect. And I've been trying to make plans and now it's the conversation of COVID is coming up. And certainly I want to be really mindful of my boundaries and other people's boundaries when it comes to protecting our health. But I do feel fairly comfortable in the right setting if you're taking precautionary measures to do a physical distance get together. And especially when somebody's planning on moving and there's some urgency involved. And it was really interesting how it was kind of, I started to suspect that they were using COVID as an excuse because it seems like every time I've tried to see this person and really connect with this person before COVID, there was a lack of commitment and I would try to initiate something and I wouldn't hear back or they'd cancel at the last minute. And like, it doesn't seem like it's personal to me because we have wonderful conversations through text, you know, and every time we've gotten together, it seems like we have a great time. But I started to wonder, like, maybe this person has really extreme social anxiety. And I mean, maybe it is personal, too. It's possible that's the case. But I have noticed that some people really struggle with making plans. And there are some people I've experienced who have canceled at the last minute. That's not something I personally feel comfortable doing. I really don't like canceling at the last minute. I do like when other people cancel on me sometimes because <laughs> as a introvert, really get anxiety when it comes to getting together with people. Like before we went to the party today, I was like dreading it, even though I ended up having a great time. Once I get somewhere, I usually enjoy myself, but almost every time I make plans, I feel anxiety about going. And that's something that I try to examine a lot and talk myself through, you know, <laughs> like I have to really push myself to get together with people. So my heart goes out to anybody who struggles with making plans because maybe they feel the same way I do and they're just not as like socially committed to getting together. You know, like what I tend to do is think about how my choices impact that other person. So like today we went to this party I knew it was important for our friend for me to be there. Like 
it was far away. It was a hot day. There was a lot of things that made it uncomfortable and unpleasant, but I went anyways because it was about that person and celebrating them. And I had another physical distance gathering just with a friend, one other person. And it was really important for that person for me to show up and be there, you know? It, and so it was more about them than me. And, and that's another reason why I don't cancel last minute, right? But I think it is really important for us to examine this because if if you're on the receiving end or if you're the person canceling yourself last minute, it's it's interesting to reflect on why you're doing that or why that other person might be acting that way and real and having more compassion for yourself and others because anxiety can feel really challenging. Another example, I've been working on my new program Beyond Measure. And one of the most interesting things about that program that I didn't anticipate is all the different nuances that people have in this social situation I put together. So beyond measure, I'm in a a testing period at this time of recording in August, and I've been inviting people in to experience it and give me feedback on the program, which is currently structured in two main ways. One, we have weekly video calls where you have the option to come on and and speak on video, or you can just turn both audio and video off and participate in a chat or just watch. And then the other way is to communicate in like a forum, like Facebook group type setting. And it's been interesting today, especially I had my one of the calls earlier today. And uh, a couple people told me that they weren't going to show up and their reasons were all along the lines of like not feeling like they could show up and be their full selves because they weren't feeling well or they were struggling with anxiety or they had a lot on their plate, like whether it was busyness. And it's been interesting to observe, like, are they using those things as excuses because it's hard to get close to people when they're feeling anxious? And I think that's what's a really important thing to notice about yourself and others is like sometimes anxiety can feel crippling and it it's really tough to connect with others. And, and maybe you do just want to feel that instant relief of canceling last minute. Or you might be like me where I would rather do something even when I feel anxious because canceling last minute I've associated with like poor socials. It's not... um Etiquette? Yes. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> the etiquette side of things, I feel uncomfortable doing that to somebody. I, I I would rather not experience that because I, if I canceled on someone last minute, I would also have anxiety for canceling, right? Like I would, oh, for sure. I would feel bad about it. I would worry that it would compromise the friendship, right? So there's a lot to consider in these cases, and I think maybe this is why some people don't make plans at all. Like that person I mentioned earlier, maybe it's really tough to make plans because they're afraid of canceling last minute and losing me as a friend. Like maybe it feels safer to not make plans at all. I'm also like so curious about who this friend is. Like offline, I I want you to tell me who it is. Because now my mind, Whitney, is like going through the Rolodex of who it might be. But that's neither here nor there. I'm sure you'll (laughs) tell me. I'm not going to throw them under the bus. No, not live not on the recording there's know, no need to e- do that but but even offline i don't i don't think no, it's I'm, necessary I'm just, i know i'm just curious i'm just curious but isn't that kind of like a form of gossiping in a way no not at all i don't think so what just because i want to know who you're referring to <laughs> i don't know i mean i i think about that sometimes like being mindful of um 
when we talk about certain traits of people that they might be like embarrassed or ashamed of, you know, like, should we call them out for it? And I mean, that's a whole nother conversation, but something I, I reflect a lot on is, is I, I really try my best to work on protecting people, you know, and even just like that small thing of like, Hey, like, can you believe that this person did this? Like, or dissecting a specific person, I think, I don't know if I would want someone to do that about me, in other words, and I'm trying to be more proactive about not doing that to others. That's my point. Yeah, I think that's really mindful and considerate of you. Uh, Also, I hope that you'll tell me. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Well, here's another interesting thing is uh, the sixth way that we use distance to manage anxiety is texting somebody when you should probably call them. Oh, Whitney, this is an interesting one because immediately what comes up for me is the multiple conversations you and I have had over the years of knowing each other where certain colleagues or friends or associates will be like, no, let's have a phone call. And you're like, I don't want to have a phone call. Can't they just fucking text me? Can't they just send me a fucking DM? Why do they have to be on the phone and do this like it's the 19 fucking 50s? Like I've noticed that like, again, you have had some really strong reactions to like people asking to get on a phone call with you. I'm curious in maybe looking back in retrospect, do you feel that even though you had a reticence to do that and other and the other person was insisting on it, that maybe certain things could have been more clearly communicated as a result of the phone call? Like, that's what I mean. It's like this thing of like, it's almost more convenient to text someone or DM them or I don't know, an SMS message or a typewritten message or something like that. But I just feel like in a lot of situations, and and I do this too, there's there's moments where I'm like, I really don't want to get on the phone with this particular person. But often when I have that resistance to getting on the phone with a person, things get cleared up pretty quickly. So I, I guess I'm exploring my own resistance to doing this, but you also, yeah, in those times where you're like, just text me or just DM me or just shoot me an email. Do those situations, do you find that if you were to just get on a phone call, could things have been more clearly communicated or cleared up as a result of that? And also, like, what is your resistance sometimes to getting on the phone with someone? Well, I think it might be an introverted thing simply because I think that when you get on the phone with somebody, it almost always turns into a longer exchange than it needs to be. It's kind of like if you have a meeting, meet a lot of people don't like having meetings at work because they're unnecessary, they're wastes of time. Even though, yes, they are, can be really great ways to communicate with a group of people. I guess for me, one thing that's really helped recently is doing voice memos. And that's another thing that's been interesting. I've been doing that a lot with Beyond Measure. And I've been sending voice memos to people through Instagram direct message. What's been fascinating for me to observe is how people react. Like there's a, a few different reactions I've received, right? So I send somebody a voice memo. And what's cool about Instagram is that you can only record for a minute. And the same thing is true with Facebook Messenger, which at times is frustrating because you have to break up long messages into one minute segments, but it actually forces you to say a lot within a minute. So versus a phone call, if you don't have a set time structure, you know, you might feel like, oh, you have plenty of time. Or I feel like a standard meeting is like minimum 15 minutes. And if I have a long day, if I've got a lot going on, if I'm feeling tired, like even 15 minutes can feel really exhausting and draining. And I think that's part of the point. Yeah, it does clear things up. 
But now that voice memos have become more commonplace, I think that's a really great in-between texting and, and a phone call because also you can listen to a voicemail whenever you want and respond whenever you want as unlike a phone call where you maybe feel like you're on the spot to respond a certain way and you have to go back and forth. Like voice memos, I think are, are really lovely in that sense. So going back to my experience with the Beyond Measure messages, um, it isn't just for Beyond Measure, but it's an element of Beyond Measure. I've been working on, I've been sending Instagram messages to people to respond to their comments on Instagram. So I'll just go in and slide into their DMs. <laughs> I also send uh, voice memos to new people that follow me on Instagram right now. I've been experimenting with that. And some people like never respond. Like they don't even acknowledge my memo. I think maybe it makes them uncomfortable, I guess, or they don't know how to respond to it because it's kind of unusual. Two is some people have actually sent me back voice memos. So I get to hear their voices, which is so awesome. And what an amazing way to connect with people. And then some people write me uh, text-based responses, and it's in, been an incredible way to connect. So I'm really glad that I found a happy medium, and I think that this is part of what we can figure out as we consider the ways that we might use distance. Sometimes it's just that the current circumstances that were presented or the social norms don't feel right for us, and it, it's about finding an alternative that feels good for us. and trying to understand ourselves better, you know? Yeah, it's a nuanced thing, right? I mean, people have their preferences. And I think when it comes to human communication, one of the challenging things about text and DM and things like that is that we don't get nuance. We don't get the lilt or the inflection of the voice. We don't get to see a person's facial expressions. And how many times, <laughs> boy, have I sent a text where someone's like, I they would respond like with some sort of anger or incredulousness. I'm like, I did not mean it that way because when you're sending it again, an SMS or a text-based message or a DM, you just, you don't get inflection or lilt or, you know, the emotional cadence of the way a person speaks. So the art of human communication is, I mean, it's an ongoing evaluation, isn't it? Is how best do I communicate and have this person hopefully understand what I'm trying to to say to them. But I think it's really cool that you're sending voice memos and and I've, done that sometimes, Whitney, with, um, I suppose, fans or followers or customers of mine over the years. And video or audio messages, people really appreciate it. It's such a simple thing, but they're like, oh my God, I can't believe you sent this to me. So there's also, like, I think, a deeper appreciation factor when you do send those kind of messages to people. For sure. And I think that's simply because it helps us feel more connected versus distant. Another example on, on the opposite spectrum is I really feel a little frustrated sometimes when I'll take the time to write somebody a long text or an email and they either never respond or they respond with a really short message. Or to me, the worst is when through Instagram, if you write a nice comment, like a really thoughtful comment and somebody just hearts it and they don't even like write you back a comment to acknowledge it, or you send a direct message and they just heart the message and they don't actually respond. And so that's helped me take into consideration when I feel tempted to do those things. A lot of times it's just laziness or it's like the poor timing, like, oh, I don't have time to address this message in the moment. And so I'll heart it to acknowledge it. But I really try to be intentional about coming back and responding. 
And I think it's really helpful for us to do that, to take that time, unless we simply are overwhelmed with the amount of communication. But, you know, I've noticed this with like brands and stuff. And recently I had a few experiences where brands were like begging me to do content about them. And I would take the time to do the content, like a TikTok video or Instagram story, whatever it is. And then like they respond with like a one line thanks or something like that didn't require a lot of effort on their part. And as somebody who likes to be acknowledged, it's been really frustrating. Like, wait a second, you really wanted me to do something. I did it. And all I get is just a simple thanks. Like, (laughs) do you know what I mean? Like the Uh effort feels like imbalanced. For sure. And I think that can happen in communication too. But I also am trying to be mindful of like, well, maybe that person feels like that's enough, or maybe they don't know how to express themselves another way, or maybe words of affirmation are not their love language like it is for mine. And I think a lot of people struggle with the communication and it it can cause that anxiety. So I'm trying to be more mindful and less judgmental of how other people respond to me. All right. Next on this list is, <laughs> I actually do this very frequently, and I think it kind of ties in, is Number seven is avoiding listening to an important voicemail. I don't get that many voicemails, but I don't like getting voicemail. (laughs) I don't know why I think it's because it, it feels like that pressure to respond, you know, but it also is equally frustrating when somebody calls you and they don't leave a voicemail and they don't even like text you. So you have no idea why they're calling. And then maybe you feel like pressured to call them back but you don't want to call them back because you don't know what they want. That can be really awkward too. Yeah, it's cryptic. You're like, why did you, this can't be that important because that's where my mind goes is this can't be that important because (laughs) if it was important, you would have likely left me a text message or a voicemail or a DM. And yeah, that, that is, it's, I don't know if cryptic is the right word, but it's, it's bizarre. I have a few friends that do that, that they just will not, send any follow-up message. And I don't know, maybe it's a reasonable assumption that if someone is really, really needing to get a hold of me, that they will text me or DM me or call multiple times in a row. But yeah, to your point, Whitney, it's a bit like, why did you call me and not leave a reason why? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting observing like my reaction to voicemails and why I avoid them. I think it It's kind of similar to emails, actually. Like I I have a bunch of unread emails in my inbox, which drives me crazy. I prefer to have inbox zero, but for the past month or so, I haven't achieved that. And part of that is because I want to read everything in the email. Like I'm not somebody that just clicks and marks it as unread and moves on. Like I am very intentional when it comes to emails. I like to read them. I like to formulate a response. And a lot of the times I get overwhelmed with what to say. And so I'll just leave something unread until I respond to it. And (laughs) sometimes there are unread messages for months or, or in some cases over a year. And that's simply because it feels like a lot of emotional work for me to respond. And after going through this list, I'm, I'm just reflecting on how can I create a better process for myself? So I'm not in this place of creating so much distance. Number eight on this list is only talking about your kids when you talk with your spouse. 
which is not something that Jason and I can relate to because we don't have spouses or kids. No, but as best friends. We talk about our animals a lot. A large portion of our conversations <laughs> are dedicated to the fur babies. True. We don't use it as avoidance. We're usually like, oh, right. oh, how's baby? How's baby doing? How is the baby rhino? And of course, we have an ubiquitous number of nicknames for all of them, but we're not using it as an of. I don't. Are we Whitney? That's this is a we? good time to examine it. You know, like are we? Are we? Oh, this <laughs> we is need weird. To reflect on these things. I don't think we are, but I could certainly see how it's similar to talking about the weather or sports. Like, are you just talking about your kids because you don't want to talk about something deeper with your spouse? You know, and it's worth examining in all of our different relationships, family members, friends, romantic partners, like what are we talking to them about and what aren't we talking to them about? Number nine on the, on the list is lying about your beliefs to avoid a disagreement. Whoa. Fascinating. I'm trying to think if I've done that. How about you? Hmm. Lying about my beliefs so I can avoid a disagreement. No, what I have done at times is in professional contexts when, say, maybe this isn't apples to oranges, but someone will be on a tangent about like, there are certain, I won't name who they are, but there are certain colleagues and people in our, I suppose, general industry that are like, yeah, eating plants is stupid and veganism is a modern concept that there's no historical relevance for any human civilization subsisting for any reasonable amount of time on a plant-based diet, blah, blah, blah. You know, the basically vegan bashing, you know? And I've been in groups where like that kind of rhetoric will come out. And I'm just like, I'm just going to walk away because, which isn't lying about my beliefs per se, but it's one could take the tack of like, you should speak up and tell them what, how full of shit they are and refer to all these studies and blah, blah, blah. But you know, if someone I feel like has kind of made up their mind and they're like, yeah, veganism is stupid. I'm just like, okay, bye. I don't even want to engage with you. I'm not going to try and convince you of anything. That's apples to oranges, but I think that's probably the closest I've gotten. Right. Oh, for sure. That reminds me of times where I've been around people who have talked about the keto diet in a condescending way. And Yeah, yeah. When I was doing keto pretty seriously, I felt so uncomfortable in those situations because I, I wouldn't say anything. I wouldn't defend it. Because I don't like to get into disagreements, you know? So I don't know if I would have lied about it, though. Like, if someone was like, hey, are you doing the keto diet? I'd probably own up to it, even if it was uncomfortable. But I, I think your example is actually a really good one, Jason, is sometimes we just don't say anything. And that just makes me wonder how many people don't say things that they really believe in simply because... They don't want to get in those uncomfortable situations. And I think this is another benefit to talking about these things and understanding it is, is trying to just better understand each other. Number 10 on the list is only seeing your family on, quote, duty visits, meaning duty like- Duty visits. Like <laughs> D-U-T-Y. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I wasn't thinking- <laughs> To clean up their shit. I wasn't thinking. <laughs> I'm here to clean up your shit, mom. <laughs> no. um, you know, like uh, you feel obligated to see your family or you do it on holidays or yeah, like any of those type of obligations, I suppose, that you'd have to see someone. 
again, I don't experience that with my family. I think maybe, well, I shouldn't say that because for my immediate family, I don't experience that. My my dad, my mom, and my sister, I, I do enjoy seeing. I look forward to seeing them. For my grandparents, I think sometimes it felt like a duty visit, like, well, they're getting old or I don't have a choice because my parents are dragging me to see my grandparents. And also sometimes with my cousins, I would feel that way. Like, were they only seeing me because they had to, you know, like certain cousins of mine, I I didn't feel really close to. And as I got older, that actually kind of made me feel sad because I want to have these deep relationships with people. I don't want it to feel like we're just doing it out of obligation, you know? So that's interesting. I, I'm sure some people do that. I mean, people that struggle with their family dynamics may feel obligated to spend time with them. And I, I think that's really important to examine is why are you doing something? Like, is it even really your duty to see somebody? Like, why would you force yourself to be with somebody even if you don't have a good relationship with them or it's really uncomfortable for you? And you have to kind of examine that. Like, why is it uncomfortable? Is it that you don't feel like you have anything to agree upon? Do you feel like maybe there's even like an abusive relationship emotionally or perhaps even physically putting yourself in that situation where it could cause you harm or massive anxiety? I think I would say just don't do it at all, but it's really going to depend on a case-by-case basis and a lot of different circumstances. Yeah, the duty visit thing's interesting because I I don't feel that sense of, I don't know, pressure, I suppose, or responsibility with my family. And it's likely by the virtue that I don't see them more than one to two times a year, You know, whether that's my mom coming to LA or me going to Michigan to see them. But I think in some ways when my grandparents were sick, you know, it's not that I didn't want to see my grandma and grandpa near the end of their life, but it was really, and this was when I was much younger, you know, it was hard to see them, right? Because you're faced with that mortality. You're faced with these two really strong people that in my grandma and grandpa's case, my grandpa Walter and grandma Rose, they helped raise me. You know, they were really instrumental when my mom was working, you know, two, three, four jobs at a time to make ends meet as a single mom. And I think those kind of visits might've been duty visits, just not that I didn't want to see them, but simply because it was so massively emotionally uncomfortable to see them in that state, you know, as they were closer to death, you know? So in that sense, and and that's, I can't imagine that's ever easy. I mean, anytime I've gone to visit anyone in the hospital, that was, I don't know, mission critical. It's, it's like, whoo. That's a whole nother episode and conversation, but I'm already, I'm just I'm getting kind of emotional even just thinking about that. Yeah, and I also wonder what it's like to be on the receiving end. You know, is somebody just coming to visit you because they feel like they have to? Yeah, I, like you're gonna die soon. I should come see you. Yeah. 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 I I mean, absolutely. Yeah. I can relate to that too with my grandparents. I would say my last grandparent to pass away was my my dad's dad, and. I think it was a combination of the two where I loved that grandfather. Like he was probably the closest that I was, the grandparent that I was closest to. And I was grateful to have a lot of time with him because he was the last of the four to pass away. And he was 97 and a half. We did a lot of things. We had a lot of conversations, a lot of great memories. And I remember there was a period where close to the end of his life, I was calling him every single day because I was, you know, live in LA and he lived in New Jersey. 
And then I happened to be on the East Coast at the end of his life, like the last couple weeks that he was alive. And so I, I got to see him a few times and I was really grateful for that. And so, yeah, I remember like being very intentional about it, but simultaneously I didn't feel like I was doing it just for the duty. But that is because we had a good relationship, you know what I mean? Like versus one of my grandmothers, because she was very sick most of my life, she had Parkinson's and I think some other things going on that made it hard to connect with her. So it didn't feel, it because it felt disconnected with her, it did feel like I was going there out of duty or obligation, you know, and it was uncomfortable a lot of the times. So it was uncomfortable to talk to her on the phone because she didn't speak very well. So it was hard to understand her. At the same time, though, I don't regret forcing myself to have those interactions with her. I think that's a big key in this whole conversation is like, yeah, sometimes we might do something out of obligation and in the moment it feels uncomfortable and unpleasant, but we have to look at the long-term benefits of this and and not having those regrets. I think I fear more of not doing something than doing something and that often will drive me to do it despite the discomfort. The next way that we use distance to manage anxiety is asking someone lots of questions to avoid sharing about your own life. And I think I do this a lot, (laughs) (laughs) especially in social situations. I will. I mean, I like to ask questions in general. I'm very curious. It's interesting because I I do think that sometimes I I do that to avoid sharing about myself. I, I get anxious about like being asked questions. I don't like to answer questions as much as I like to ask them. Well, you're also very driven by wanting to know the answer to the questions why. We've talked about this in previous episodes. You're definitely a questioner, Whitney. So is it more that it's your innate nature or is it that you are trying to avoid revealing more about yourself? Or is it both? Is it a combination of both for you? That, oh, innately you're curious, but you also are maybe not wanting to reveal too much about who you are. Hmm. I obviously with this podcast don't have an issue revealing much about myself. I like getting vulnerable. I like sharing things. And there's some subject matters I choose not to talk about simply because I like to have certain elements of privacy in my life. But for the most part, I wouldn't say that it's a matter of avoiding talking about elements of myself. It's that I have to really trust somebody to open up or I have to feel like I'm in a safe situation. So I trust you, Jason, and I feel safe on the podcast right now because our listeners are generally very accepting and loving and understanding and compassionate people. As far as we know, perhaps that'll change in the future if we grow to a larger audience and there might be more critical people and be very curious to see if I would feel unsafe in that situation. But yeah, I I think that's what it is. I don't know if it's that I'm avoiding intimacy. I think it's that I have to believe that somebody actually cares and will hold that safe space for me to share about my life. Number 12 on this list is something we've already talked about in a previous episode at length, which is ghosting a date instead of telling them that you're not interested. Yeah, I'm not sure that there's very much we can add beyond the explorations that we covered in that episode, which was an entire episode dedicated to that. It's uncomfortable and painful either way, right? So it's like pick your poison. Do you want to ghost someone, which is likely going to create discomfort and maybe pain for that other person? And certainly it's on some level uncomfortable for you unless 
maybe ghosting isn't, and then maybe you want to examine if you're a sociopath. But I think that if you're honest with someone, that's also uncomfortable, right? And it's also potentially painful because you're letting someone down. So to reiterate what I said in that ghosting episode, it's like, okay, you're not avoiding creating pain and discomfort by ghosting. You're just perpetuating it. And to me, it's a question that I ask myself all the time of, what is the choice that is going to be the most integrous, right? That has the highest integrity and that is going to have the most compassion for the situation, right? Yeah. With that, it's like, I know it's going to be radically uncomfortable for me to send a text or to call this person and tell them I'm not interested, but that feels more integrous and compassionate and loving than ghosting someone. That's my personal choice and why I don't ghost people. Absolutely. And for the listener, if you haven't listened to the ghosting episode, we will link to that in the show notes along with the CBD episode we mentioned and any other articles, resources that we mentioned in this episode at wellevator.com, which is spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Number 13 on this list is saying, I'm good, I'm fine, I'm okay, etc. when you aren't. So it's coming back to that kind of cliche conversation starter, which Jason mentioned earlier, like, hey, what's going on in your life? The other thing is, is when somebody just asks you like, hey, how are you doing? It's so commonplace for us to say, oh, I'm good or I'm great. I get super uncomfortable when somebody asks me how I'm doing because, again, like I don't know if they actually care how I'm doing or if they're just using that to start a conversation. So I think I often will say like, I don't know if I say I'm good that often. I, th- I guess I do. I try to say I'm great because I tend to be great. I guess I, I'll say I'm good if I don't feel great. <laughs> I think when somebody says I'm okay or when I say I'm okay, I perceive that as like not doing well. You know, like okay yeah. sounds like, oh, maybe things aren't that great. So I guess if I wanted somebody to inquire more, I'd probably say I'm okay. But I feel like as soon as I say I'm good or somebody says I'm good, like, where else are you going to go? Like, oh, really? Tell me why you're good. Yeah, no one ever (laughs) does that. You know what I mean? No. Yeah, it's really interesting. The other version of that that I have to laugh at is this conditioned, distanced conversation in retail environments. I don't remember this happening as a kid, but at some point... When you're going through the grocery checkout line, they're like, did you find everything you were looking for today? It's like, oh, no, no, I didn't actually didn't. I was looking for an orange Lamborghini. I was looking for a Shiba Inu puppy and also a Brazilian wife. And none of those were here. So no, actually, I didn't. And sometimes I'll fuck with people in a loving way. You know, like I'll say that like, <laughs> yeah, I was looking for a wife and an orange Lambo and could not find them anywhere. And they'll laugh. Because I want to break down that ridiculous kind of wall of conditioned bullshitty interaction. It's like, you don't give a fuck if I found everything I was looking for. I've actually said to people, no, I didn't. And then it goes nowhere. They're like, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. It's like, do you want to call over the manager and maybe ask if you want to stock that fucking product? Like, it's such, it goes nowhere. You know what I mean? And I dislike that kind of conditioned, completely vapid interaction with people. So I, I try to make a joke of it sometimes just to break that a little bit, you know? But it is like, for sure. did you find everything you were looking for? You don't give a shit. You don't give a shit. <laughs> Can we acknowledge that? First of all, you literally do not care if I found what I was looking for. Let's just start there. Well, we can't make that <laughs> assumption. They don't care. Whitney, but I, I agree. They probably are being asked to say those things yes. by their employers. And I think yes. it's, it's 
really the employer manager's responsibility to like, why are they even asking their employees to say these things? You know? Yeah. Like, where is that going to go? That's what I mean. Like, yes, great. Okay. Let's move on. You know? And if it's no, where do you go? I've never had anyone give me a solution to the no answer. Literally. (laughs) Right. Cause they're probably not used to hearing no. And I think that I've, that I've probably experienced where I said like, oh, I was actually looking for this and maybe th- that cashier or um, employee was was helpful in that situation. But the common scenario is that they're super busy or tired. Like they don't want to have to drop what they're doing to help you. But I guess they also are in a position to be helpful. So yeah, it is. it is an interesting thing. I get annoyed by those things too. That actually leads right into the next ways that we use distance is changing the subject when you sense people are anxious. And that's actually an interesting one because to me, it makes logical sense that you would change the subject if somebody seems anxious. So I wonder how that could lead to distance between each other. Like, is it, in other words, like avoiding an uncomfortable conversation versus going deeper into something, even if it is uncomfortable? Hmm. I don't know. This is a strange one. It reminds me of like conversations at the dinner table with family or friends where someone will bring up something that's like a sensitive subject and you can feel that the other people at the dinner party are uncomfortable because it doesn't involve them. Do you know what I mean? Those kind of situations, Whitney, where it's like, oh, yeah, like that one time you burned my underwear at the, when we went out to camp and I didn't have any other underwear and had to sit in my nasty disgusting shorts for like the eight hour ride like whatever it is it's a ridiculous example where do you come up with these examples i don't know (laughs) my mind is very fast but i'm sure you've been in a situation where you'll be in a group of people or a dinner setting and someone's like oh yeah like that one time and then like it kind of gets quiet and the other people not involved in that tense interaction kind of look at each other like okay does anyone want ice cream (laughs) you know There's those moments where, yeah, like I recently experienced a moment like that in a situation. I don't want to get into it too much because it's not not my place to bring that situation to the podcast. But I was like, but you're going to tell situ- me offline, right? I will. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. And I was sitting there like, what do I do? Do I change the subject? Do I walk out? What the fuck do I do? Like, it's, it's extremely uncomfortable. I think not only to be in the interaction, right, of unresolved something, but to be on the outside of it, looking at the people doing it in that kind of setting is like, whoa, what do I, okay. I don't know. It's interesting, right? If you sense there's discomfort or anxiety, do you change the subject or do you just let it play out? I don't know. I don't know that there's a right answer. Or maybe do you address the anxiety? Maybe this is the point. Like instead of trying to pretend like it's not happening or stop it from happening, maybe anxiety needs to be addressed. Like hey, let's get to the root of this and fix it so that you feel better, you know? Mm, Yeah. Yeah, I I suppose like in this case, when you're on the outside looking in and it's two other people that are dealing with their own discomfort, trauma, anxiety, it's sort of like, do I say something? Do I not say something? Do I, yeah, go get the ice cream, get dessert ready? I don't know. It's a tricky thing. Next on this list is, is also interesting. I'm actually going to combine 15 and 16 together. Uh, 15 is not introducing yourself to coworkers who seem intense. (laughs) And 16 is not initiating conversations with people who look different than you. 
So it's kind of like judging somebody like, oh, they seem intense or this person looks different. So I'm not going to bother talking to them. I can't say that I've had that experience with coworkers in the past. I'm immediately thinking about like working in retail when there were a lot of coworkers or when I was worked in big office environments. I think I'm typically someone that introduces myself to everybody, but I bet you there were cases where I didn't go out of my way to befriend somebody because I was judging them. And I also don't think I can relate to this initiating conversations with people who look different than me. But then again, I bet you I have done that. You know, like the first example that comes to mind is yesterday I was at the grocery store and there was somebody that seemed maybe mentally ill or perhaps homeless. He was kind of talking to himself in the aisles and he didn't smell very good. He looked a little disheveled. And I found myself like trying to observe him from afar, but like not wanting to get too close to him. And that in a way is not initiating a conversation because he simply looks different than me. This could be applied to people that have different religious backgrounds based on what they're wearing or different skin colors or however else we perceive that somebody is different than us. I think we've had a lot of conversations about racism and that certainly is is part of this, but it is beyond race. There's a lot of different things that when we put people into a category of being different or other or or making judgments about what they seem like and how that might cause us to feel like we're not going to be able to connect with them or we don't want to connect with them. I'm kind of laughing to myself, Whitney, because the situations that come up for me are when huh, when I've done some sort of, I guess, workshop or retreat or transformational experience, you know, something like that, where you go and you're you're in a group setting and they're like, okay, we're going to go around and everyone call out a number. Now all the ones get together, all the twos get together, oh, no. all the threes get together. You've been in the situation, yes? Oh, yes. I think right. we all have. There, it's not always, but I'm just reflecting on a recent experience from 2019. It wasn't exactly this, but it was a thing of like, oh yeah, go hang out. And there was, he's fine. You know, the, I just remember the one guy came to mind most recently that I was just like, uh, he seems gruff. I remember that was the way he, yeah. he seems gruff. His energy is a bit spiky. And in my interactions or being near him or observing him, I'm like, I don't really want to talk to this dude. I don't really want to talk to him. I'm glad you shared that, Jason, because now that you're saying that, I have had those experiences. And it is a great example of it's not about the coworkers as was provided here by Kathleen. It, it's about those kind of social situations where maybe it's someone at a party and you're like, ooh, like this doesn't seem like someone I want to talk to, you know? And like, so you're right. I, I certainly have been in that position. And it's interesting to reflect on that. Yeah. And for me, it's it's definitely an energetic thing. It's almost like you talked about observing that the man in the uh, grocery aisle, right, is in this particular case or in these group settings where you're you don't have any control over who you're paired with in these, I don't go whatever group transformational situations or workshops, whatnot, where each person will have a chance to speak and go around, you know, that type of thing. And and I suppose it is a little bit judgmental of I don't know who this person is, but maybe I'm judging them or no, I don't want to say judgment because judgment has a negative charge on it, although maybe sometimes it is judgmental. 
But we talked about this in a previous episode of Judgment versus Discernment, where judgment has a negative energetic charge of like, oh, I don't want to talk to Dave. Dave's creepy. Versus a discernment where you're like, you know, I'd prefer not to be around his energy. It doesn't feel good to me. You know, there's no negative charge on it. But to me, it's almost like I try and feel into people's energy and observe their energy. And if it feels like something I don't want to interact with, I try to avoid it. Doesn't mean I will avoid it, but I try to. Right. Number 17 on this list is avoiding talking to people who are sick or dying. And I feel like we we already covered that when we were talking about our grandparents or anybody yeah. in our lives. Yeah. It's tough. It's certainly not easy. And I think that it is a very selfless thing to do if you can move through any anxiety you have around those things, because I'm sure that's a very lonely period of your life to be in. Yeah, it's still one of those those things that I, I suppose I've never really gotten good at is not even a, a good way to describe this, but to acknowledge my discomfort of bearing witness to someone's mortality. Well, we talked a lot about death in a previous episode, which we'll link to in the show notes, but facing mortality, facing death, and visiting people that we love who are in a situation that, that is mortal, maybe it's a combination, Whitney, of the pain of the grieving process that we know we're going to have to go through by losing them, but also being confronted with our own inevitable mortality. And those two things together are, I think, mentally and emotionally, that's an incredibly difficult thing to feel both of those things. You know, the sense of when they leave, I'm going to be devastated, maybe, you know, depending how close you were. And then also I have to acknowledge that at some point I'm also going to depart this planet as well. Yeah, absolutely. It brings up a lot. And I think this is part of all of these examples is like a lot of the times it is kind of like a selfless or selfish thing, I should say, where I don't want to feel this way. So I'm going to avoid it and make create distance. And maybe some people avoid having close relationships with one another as a result of these things. It's too tough. I don't want to be in this situation. I don't want to let someone down. I don't, I know myself and I'm going to fall into these patterns. And I find myself doing that too. If somebody consistently shows up in some of these ways where I feel let down by them, then I start to avoid even communicating with them at all. And I think it's just so important to examine how we relate to one another in these ways. The next way on the list is not talking about past family history that is anxiety producing. And it's really interesting I certainly have experienced this where either it was an unsaid rule, like, oh, we don't talk about those things, or I've literally been shut down. And this isn't just about family history, but that's what this example is. I mean, this has certainly come up in a lot of different scenarios in my life where because I'm a questioner, I'm, I'm naturally very curious. I like to know the answers. I like to know details. And I'm generally very brave about asking. And yet, I've been in so many situations over my life where I've asked a question and and somebody said to me like, oh, we don't talk about that, you know? I don't know that I've ever been on the receiving end of that, to be honest in with any, you. Like not, not even outside of your family, like even in a work environment, maybe you just don't ask questions like I do. <laughs> yeah, it could be that way. It, it, I'm struggling to find a situation or recollect a situation from my memory that someone has made that kind of statement, you know, of like, oh, we don't bring that up. I honestly, nothing's coming to my mind. Doesn't mean it hasn't happened, but I can't immediately recall any situation like that. Interesting. Well, maybe you're f fortunate or maybe you, 
you just don't put yourself in that position like I do. I, it's not like I seek it out. I think because I'm curious in a questioner, I'll bring up things that make other people feel uncomfortable. And I find myself trying to like make them feel comfortable in those times. Like, oh, you don't have to answer if you don't want to. You know, like I kind of give somebody right. an easy out. Yeah, right, right, right. Next one is interesting, is bringing up a difficult topic during the last two minutes of therapy. In, in other words, you know you have a <laughs> you know you have a set amount of time in any uh, therapy session I've had. I I feel like my therapists have had a lot of boundaries and they've been very good. And I tend to be very respectful too. It's like you know when your time is up, and so I suppose it'd be. And I don't think I've done this. I'm trying to recall. It's been a while since I've had an official therapy session, but I don't think that I've done this, but it, it is kind of interesting. Like, ooh, maybe I'll save the um, discussion that I don't want to go deep until the very last minute. And that way I can bring it up and simultaneously protect myself from going too deep. Right? That escape hatch is right there. You can smell it. You can see it. You're like, there's the escape hatch. Yeah. It's actually kind of interesting to think about because it, yeah. it's like this act of, and, and I suppose you could do this in a lot of different situations where like, you know that you have that escape hatch, that easy out. And you also probably want to talk about something or you want to seem as if you want to talk about something. So you'll bring it up, but not actually have to talk about it because you're going to run out of time. It's interesting. I don't think I've ever done that in therapy. I tend to get to the nitty gritty and start bawling and crying and <laughs> wailing within the first few minutes. <laughs> I'm the opposite. I'm like, let's dive right in. I'm paying you good money. Let's do it. Let's do it, Gary. I feel like I'm, I was like that too in my previous sessions. And, I, you know, I just started thinking the other day how I don't feel a major desire to go back to therapy. I tend to be someone, it's like going to the doctor. Like I, I'm not someone that generally goes for checkups. Like I go and I feel like something's wrong or maybe a certain amount of time has elapsed. And I just started reflecting on maybe I should just try going to therapy. Like I'm sure there's something I could talk about. All of us could benefit it from it, in my opinion. All right. We're getting down to the final examples of ways that we use distance to manage anxiety. Number 20 is not engaging in conversations that are hard but important. And I feel like we've touched upon that a lot during this conversation. Is there anything else that you would add to that, Jason? Mm, I think for each person, there's definitely foundational subjects maybe that they avoid. You know, money, religion, sex, I think there's definitely kind of, yeah, these base foundational topics that people tend to avoid with each other. Yeah. Number 21 is super interesting to me. And I think it can be a couple different things or more than a couple, actually. It's turning on the television at family gatherings. And I think this could also be applied to using your phone or any sort of device at a gathering. It's interesting to me that Kathleen Smith had such specific examples because to me, like you could go to a party and turn on the television. And honestly, I'm somebody that I might not turn it on, but if the television was on and it felt like socially acceptable, I would be that person sitting on the couch watching TV instead of engaging. And I think 
part of that is like that introverted thing. Like sometimes I just, I want to be there, but I want to be able to detach and maybe build up any energy that I feel like has been diminished or depleted. I think that's part of it. But this list is also getting me to think about like, am I just trying to create distance, you know? And it's just like when you're on your phone in the corner during a gathering and I try to be really mindful and it's very tempting to use these coping mechanisms or forms of escape in those situations where you think maybe you're tired or you're bored or maybe you don't want to talk to people. It reminds me of uh, some mutual friends of ours that host an Oscar party every year, which luckily we were able to go to this year before COVID and quarantine kind of took hold of everything. But there's moments in those parties where, you know, I know and, and recall some of the people year after year, but sometimes there's new people and whatever. And I feel like one of my escape mechanisms is because the TV's constantly going with the Oscars to just kind of like stay stuck to my seat so I don't have to get up and talk to anybody new. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I think that, again, this could play out in a lot of different ways, like any time that we do something at a gathering as a way of avoiding new conversations. And I think it's generally very uncomfortable, like social gatherings, even if you're extroverted like you, Jason, you have times where you just don't want to do that. Like you don't want to talk to someone new or you don't want to talk to somebody you know a funny example of that that I experienced, Jason, remember that time also right before COVID, I think it was at the end of January, one of our friends had a birthday party and uh, there was somebody at her birthday party that I didn't want to talk to. <laughs> and it was a picnic. And there were a lot of people there out, out on like this, these picnic blankets we had put out and we were all kind of crowded together. And I really didn't want to talk to this one person. So I kept moving and he kept trying to talk to me so he would get closer to me. <laughs> and I would move to a different part of the blanket. And I was trying to make it not noticeable. But at some yeah. point, I, I heard him say to somebody else, wow, every time I try to get close to Whitney, she moves away. And I was like, oh, no, I've been caught. <laughs> But I was very aware. Oh I didn't my God. I didn't know what to do, you know, and I was like I was willing to be caught avoiding this person because it was being caught felt more comfortable than trying to let him know that I didn't want to talk to him, you know? <laughs> like I just yeah. didn't want to talk to him. I I yeah. felt uncomfortable around him based on some situation that we were in. Not romantic at all in case anyone's assuming it wasn't a a romance type of thing. It was a something completely different that led to me feeling uncomfortable around him at that time. And when he showed up, I was like, oh, no. And I think many of us have been there. Like we're at a party and somebody shows up and we don't want to talk to them. Things are awkward, whatever reason we have. And you'll find like ways to leave the event or to go somewhere else or to talk to somebody else. And oh, those are the worst. I really don't like that feeling. Next on the list is actually ties into this as well. And one of my favorite examples on this list, which is when people double book so they have an easy out at a gathering, like they schedule themselves for two events at the same time. And that way, when they're done with one event, they can go to the other or vice versa. And I brought this up to a friend of mine because I thought this was super interesting. And she was saying how 
it also can feel like, oh, well, A, I'm so important. I have two events to go to. And you know, you're lucky that I showed up at yours at all. Or B, it's, oh, man. I'm going to go to one event and feel it out. And if it's not really good, I'm going to go to the second event. Yeah. Maybe I'll go to the second event and feel that out and then go back to the first event if the second one isn't good. You know what I mean? Yeah. I feel like that's kind of a cliche thing in LA. For sure. I would say it's a cliche thing. And it's mostly, I feel kind of like, at least outwardly, Whitney, the first version, which is like, oh God, I was about to do an impression, which would have given away who I was trying to do an impression of. I shouldn't do that. <laughs> Where someone's like, oh yeah, you know, I can only stay for like 20 minutes because I've got this thing and there's this, you know, red carpet thing and there's this fitting and then I need to go to Malibu for blah, 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 you know, and get a, a colonic and, you know, get my butt blown out, whatever the fuck. It's so cliche in Los Angeles that people do that. It's so cliche. Yeah. And I wonder, is it a way of managing anxiety and keeping people at a distance? I always kind of viewed it as like an opportunistic type of thing. But I think what happens in a city like Los Angeles, which is kind of known for being on the superficial side, is maybe things are superficial because we're all trying to protect ourselves and manage our anxiety, you know? Yeah, and, and maybe also, it is also, a little bit more universal. Like maybe it isn't just an LA thing. Maybe it happens yeah. all over the world. Yeah, true. I don't want to subjugate LA or throw LA under the bus. It just seems that that's a pretty common thing here. And I think there's an element of wanting to maybe allay anxiety, but there's another layer of image management, right? It's like, wow, this person's really in demand. They've got all these parties to go to. It's almost like they're trying to portray an image of significance. Could be. Could be. I don't know if I, I think that when I double book, it's simply because I'm trying to do too much. I don't think I'm ever trying to like make myself seem in demand. I'm like, well, I really don't want to miss out on either experience. So I'm just going to go do both, you know? And it is interesting if someone perceives that differently. Number 23 is planning nonstop activities to keep everyone busy. And I, I immediately think of parents that might do this. Like maybe if everybody in our family is busy all the time, like we won't ever really have a chance to connect with one another, or maybe I don't want to connect with them. Or it's kind of interesting to think about that, how even in like events, like conferences or retreats, like everything's so nonstop. And I don't like that. Again, it's an introvert thing for me. <laughs> like, I want breaks. I want time to relax and unwind. And I don't like that word busy. And I also don't like what it means to be busy in this scenario, which is constantly doing things all the time. I find that so draining and exhausting. And I want to be able to connect with people more. I'd rather just have one activity. That also reminds me of when people plan events at loud venues. I mm. don't enjoy that at all. I don't like going to loud bars. I would so much rather sit outside on a comfortable couch and have a quiet atmosphere. I don't like loud music at parties because I want to talk to people. That's part right. of the reason that I go. And not but blow I, your voice out. Yeah. Right. But I yeah. wonder if some people play loud music or have events at at loud places where you're competing over each each other's voice volume in order to to hear each other like is that a form of keeping things at a distance like you're not going to be able to talk to one another and you're going to have to drink a ton 
and just like awkwardly stare at each other or dance or whatever else, you know, like, is that a way of avoiding intimacy versus if you're at an intimate event where there's only a few people there and it's really quiet, you're forced to have deeper conversations. I don't know. But as you're describing those loud, kind of crazy, frenetic parties, in this moment, I'm my body and being does not miss those parties, Whitney. <laughs> They're also like, there is a little bit of anxiety I feel around the idea of I don't even know what the correct terminology is when the world opens back up, when society, quote, normalizes or balances or something that it's like this. I don't know when the world finds its footing, whatever the case is that mm, I feel like I'm going to I don't know. I might feel a little bit strange going to like large gatherings at first. You know, In fact, kind of going back to what we talked about today of going to uh, the birthday gathering, the socially distanced birthday gathering. I told the host, I said, I was really kind of a little bit anxious coming here. Like I didn't want to have like weird interactions. I didn't know how many people were going to be here. I didn't know how I would feel. So when you bring that up, Whitney, like, I don't know, there's a little bit of uh, maybe potential anxiety I feel about gatherings starting up again, large ones, large, loud ones. I agree. And <laughs> that reminds me of, um, I might have seen this on TikTok. There was some video I saw of a concert that was happening in, I feel like it was in the UK. And they had set up all these like individual sections for the concert. So you would like go into your own little contained section with like a few chairs instead of having to stand in the middle of a big crowd like we got so used to at a lot of concerts. And somebody commented, they're like, this is an introvert's dream, you know, and another person was like, wow, you mean I could actually sit down in a chair and watch a concert instead of being in this massive crowd and trying to find space? And it is going to be interesting to see, like, I'm sure we'll go back to that at some point. You know, we've had pandemics in the world before. I could be wrong, though. I don't know. Maybe events will never go back to that. Who knows? But it'll certainly be a little while until that happens if it does. And I love the idea of being able to go to a concert and sit down in a chair and be in my own little section and not have to like stand around with a bunch of strangers and compete for a spot and all of that. So I think parties could be very similar as well. Maybe parties will be more intimate like the one we went to today where there weren't that many people there. And I felt comfortable going because I thought, oh, I can always use COVID as, as my excuse if I'm like sitting off in the corner like, hey, guys, like I just don't want to get close to you. But in reality, I'm I'm just doing it because I don't want to talk to anybody. You know what I mean? And that's what I'm, as I said earlier, like we could use COVID as a lot of different excuses. And I think that's going to be something that's revealed a lot. Like I started to feel anxious when things were opening back up again. I felt very comfortable at the beginning stages of quarantine. And, and if you can no longer use as that as an excuse not to go socialize, it's going to be really interesting. All right, we've got two more on this list before we wrap up. Number 24 is assuming people aren't interested in hearing about your passions. And I can absolutely relate to this. This goes back to what I said earlier about having superficial conversations. I oftentimes just assume that people aren't going to have a deep conversation with me or don't care about what I have to say. And I think part of that is living in areas like Los Angeles where it feels like a lot of people are just kind of interested in what they can get from you. So when they ask like, what do you do? And if you don't give them the answer they want to hear, they move on or they lose interest and you kind of get used to that. And so I think 
that's part of where I start to make those assumptions. But I think in general, even in online conversations, it, it can feel like that. You know, I'm in a few Facebook groups where I interact pretty regularly. And it, it seems like even in like those type of environments, like so many people are in there just to see what they can get from you. And when I try to have deeper conversations in a Facebook group, it seems like nobody wants to have them. But maybe that is just an assumption that I have. And that was part of my inspiration for starting Beyond Measure, as as I mentioned. Like I'm trying to be very intentional about having deeper conversations. That's also part of the reason I started doing the voice memos through Instagram. It's like I want to let other people know that I care about them and I am interested in them and I want to hear about their passions. And I think we need to be prompted because we do get in this situation where maybe we just assume people don't care about what we have to say or, or who we are. Mm. It's It reminds me of, yeah, I guess situations where someone will ask you, what do you do? Right. That's kind of the go-to. And then you start explaining it and then you see them kind of break eye contact or look away or get distracted by something else. And then it's this idea of like, I'm not even going to finish the conversation because you're not even actually interested. Yep. That's a tough situation to be. Sometimes people are genuinely interested, though, or at least they fake it really well. Yeah, maybe we just have to ask somebody outright, like, hey, do you care? <laughs> <laughs> like, it that, sounds you know funny, what? but why not ask? You know what, Whitney? When gatherings start happening again, I would like us both to do that. Okay. Yeah. okay. Yeah, do, do you actually care? Or were you just asking because you think that's polite to ask? I mean, you could say that in a way that's really honest. Like, you don't have to say it with an attitude. You could just say, like, Oh, like, you know what I tend to do is I'll say, like, do you want the short answer or the long answer? Like you give somebody the option. Oh, that's good. And I'll test. I'll also test things out. Like maybe I'll give a short answer. And if somebody asks me a follow up question, I think of that as a cue that they want to hear more. I've noticed like in a lot of work environments, like when we used to go to trade shows, somebody would ask what you did. And if you gave them a long answer, you could kind of see that they weren't so interested. Yeah, they so, glaze. They start yeah. to glaze. <laughs> but I also think people are used to getting short answers and maybe you caught them off guard and they don't even know what to do. So a lot of this is like the conditioning that we've had and how we have to break through these molds of communicating with people differently. All right. The 25th and final way that we use distance to manage anxiety, according to Kathleen Smith, is minimizing your accomplishments to make others comfortable. Ooh, playing small, right? This is an interesting one. Yeah. And you know what? It's almost like a fear for me of not wanting to seem egotistical. It's I don't know if it's necessarily like wanting to make other people comfortable by minimizing the accomplishments as much as it is I'm trying to manipulate my not manipulate. I'm trying to craft my self-image in a way that doesn't seem egotistical. That's what comes up for me. If like, I don't want to seem egotistical, so I'm going to hold back. Right. And it's kind of like this assumption that others will feel uncomfortable if we talk about things that are going well. And maybe it's this fear that we can't connect with people if we're doing better than they are. And it's also an assumption that like, that would offend or bother somebody. I mean, I actually love hearing about when somebody's doing well. And it's really up to me to notice if I feel uncomfortable and deal with that. Like, I think it, it, there's so many contexts, right? Like some people do just want to be validated by you. And that's why they're telling you about their accomplishments. So I, I think it depends on your motive. 
But maybe somebody is telling you about their accomplishments because they really want to share it and it feels good to share. Or maybe this is somebody that cares about you. Like, actually, when my dad called me earlier today, he was like, hey, like, is there anything new and noteworthy or however he phrased it? I'm sure there's plenty of things when nothing came immediately to mind. And I kind of felt bad. Like, I wish that I had had like a great accomplishment to share with my dad in that moment. You know what I mean? But I think if we train ourselves to minimize ourselves, we actually are taking joy away or uh, ability to connect with somebody, especially like people that care about us and are hoping we have something good to share. And this came up again in my Beyond Measure call that I had today where I had the members write out their accomplishments for today and their accomplishments from the past week and reminding them that accomplishments can be small. They could be really simple things. And sometimes we don't focus enough on the simple accomplishments, the small accomplishments. We minimize them so much, we don't even view them as accomplishments. So I think getting into that practice of noticing them for yourself and sharing them with others, we may find that people are not only comfortable with hearing about them, but they actually would be uncomfortable if you didn't share them. There's an offshoot of this that I feel sometimes really challenged by. And it's when I am with a person, a friend, usually, well, sometimes an acquaintance, but hmm. Well, this, okay. I guess it depends how it's being delivered and who's delivering it. But sometimes when I'll be, say, out to eat with someone and uh, they will introduce me to someone they know and they'll go, oh, this is Jason. Yeah. And, you know, Jason's like, you know, this rock star chef and he hosted like the first primetime vegan cooking series in history and wrote this best selling book, you know, and he's got blah, 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 and dun, da, 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 and yada, yada, and one, whatever it is. Right. And they go on and on. And it, it's hard for me to hear sometimes because it's like, are you saying this because you want to make yourself feel important by association? Are you actually proud of me? Are you trying to uplift your status by being around me? And then I start to feel awkward because I don't really know what their intent is. That's a tricky situation that I find myself in sometimes with where I'm out, whatever, I'm out in a social situation. They're like, oh, this is Jason. And then they go on to like a really long diatribe about who I am and what I've done. And I sit there and kind of be like, oh, <laughs> I want to crawl into a fucking corner now. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure other people can relate. It's like when a family member wants to brag about you to their friends or or it's almost like they feel like they need to put you into context in that way. Yeah, almost in a grandiose way. That's what it is. It's uh, it's interesting, right? Because as I'm dissecting it in real time, is it is it that I haven't celebrated my accomplishments enough and I'm trying not to seem egotistical, but it's almost like I'm watching someone share their perception of who I am and do it in a semi-grandiose way, and I just feel so uncomfortable in those situations. Because then the other person will look at me and they'll go, oh, oh, wow. Like all of a sudden now I'm going to take you <laughs> fucking seriously. It's like, you get, you, okay, you're going to take me seriously now because of the context. Like it's weird. It goes again into like the cult of fame and success and celebrity we have in our culture that is just, I just feel icky about all of it, Whitney. And maybe that's just my current state, but maybe it's because of COVID. I don't know. But, but the whole like cult of personality and fame and influence and money and success and people like, Oh, you're so and so. Oh, now I'm gonna, you know. Sorry, I was gonna say. Ah, what well, I'll say. Now I'm gonna suck your dick. You know, it's like. 
I was nobody before, but now I'm somebody. And so now I'm important to you. I just, I don't like the way that humanity operates in that way. And maybe there's no escaping it, but it just, it makes me feel gross sometimes, you know, to see someone like, oh, you're blah, blah, blah. I should know you now. It's like, whatever. You didn't want to know me before. Now you want to know me. Well, I feel like that could turn into a whole nother conversation about handling that. And as we wrap this up, I, I would love to end with some closing notes from Kathleen in her from her email where she said she doesn't think that these behaviors are bad or unhealthy. It might be actually something that you're doing as best you know how for navigating a sticky situation. But when there's a pattern of distancing, it's helpful to ask yourself, is this my best thinking or is this just my anxiety at work? And the good news is that there are other ways to manage our own anxiety than creating distance. The bad news is that these actions usually require more temporary discomfort. This was the line where I I read and thought, we got to talk about this on the show because we're all about helping you, the listener, get uncomfortable as a way to grow. And that temporary discomfort is usually worth it. It could require you spending more time with your family. It could require you to engage in hard conversations about things like race, politics, religion, and history. It could require you putting down that glass of wine, as Kathleen says, turning off the television, getting away from your phone, and saying to people like, you know what? I'm not great. Let's talk about the challenging things. I mean, again, this is something I'm discovering through Beyond Measure. It's amazing to me how many people are used to having superficial conversations. And when you give them the opportunity to talk about their challenges and their struggles, it takes some people time to realize that you're sincere in asking about them. And that's probably one of the most rewarding parts of this new program, Beyond Measure, I've been working on and and realizing about people. Kathleen Smith says, Change doesn't happen when we always choose distance. Change happens in relationship with other humans. When we are willing to sit down and sketch out who we're trying to be and then look for opportunities to activate that image in real time. So she encourages you, and I will encourage you as well, to ask yourself some questions after listening to this. Is How do you use distance to bind anxiety? And what are some other ways that you could calm yourself down as you engage with others? And lastly, looking for opportunities for you to interrupt your distancing habits. I hope that through listening to this episode that you've had a lot to reflect upon and noticing how you feel uncomfortable, when you feel uncomfortable, and can you move into some temporary discomfort as a way to benefit yourself, to manage your anxiety, and to develop deeper relationships with others. Now that we have moved through that, all that discomfort, Jason. It was a lot of discomfort. Yeah, there's. this was a, a really interesting episode. We went kind of deep in a lot of yeah. different subject matters. It was a thick discomfort lasagna. <laughs> you know, when you make like an extra, th- now I really want lasagna. It was a thick slice of uncomfortable lasagna that was. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Agreed. Well, let's end it on a on a semi-lighter note, not to say that this couldn't have been perceived as light. I guess depends on how comfortable people are with getting uncomfortable. 
But we like to close out our episodes typically with two segments. One is called Frequently Asked Queries, which we are going to skip on this episode simply because this has been quite lengthy. And frankly, Jason and I had long days and are a bit burnt out. So for our sake, we are going to leave that out. And perhaps you're not a big fan of Frequently Asked Queries anyway, so maybe you don't care. But if you do care about Frequently Asked Queries, because you've listened to some of our past episodes that include them, stay tuned. They will be back in an upcoming episode. But what I don't want to skip over today is mentioning some of products and brands that we've been loving. Jason, who would you like to give a shout out to today? A little bit of a throwback because we haven't talked about this brand in quite some time, Whitney. You, I believe, were the one who introduced me at either one of the natural products expos or perhaps the fancy food show the past few years. Truff hot sauce. You remember this one, Wit? Truff hot sauce? Of course I do. I love anything truffle related. So I remember we freaked the fuck out when we tried. At least I did. I remember you got to try this. It was some moment. I don't remember the trade show. But anyway, my girlfriend, Laura, texts me earlier this past week. She's like, I got a new hot sauce for us. We both love hot sauces. We're both very adventurous when it comes to trying new things. It's one of the things that I adore about her. She's very open, very adventurous with food and a lot of other things. We won't go there. She's like, I got this new hot sauce. She comes in and it's truff. I'm like, oh, I know that hot sauce. And I hadn't tried it since whatever trade show we were originally introduced to it. And holy shit, Whitney, that fucking hot sauce is so good. We have pretty much decimated the entire bottle in like five days. It's so unbelievably good. I mean, it's just, it is truffle, right? So there's essence of truffle. It's like uh, chili peppers, organic agave nectar, black truffle, and a blend of proprietary spices. But yo, listener, reader, however you're consuming this episode, if you're into hot sauce, this is one of the best hot sauces I've ever had in my life. And now it's kind of addiction status now, Whitney. Now that I have a bottle at the house, We've been putting it, we made a Korean like japchae bowl the other day with Beyond Meat sausage, put it on that. We've been putting it on pizza. We've been putting it on salad dressings. We've been putting it on bowls, like pretty much damn near any savory thing. Although it could be interesting maybe to put it on something sweet. Haven't thought about that yet. But anyway, if you are a hot sauce connoisseur, dear listener slash reader, check out Truff Hot Sauce. It's with two Fs, by the way. So like rough, rough, think truff, truff. And you will go there. So <laughs> that should be in their ad. They yeah. also have a delightful bottle, I must say. The cap on, oh, the, on the hot sauce is very satisfying. It's kind of like reminds me of a, a crystal or something like that because it's it's kind of textured. Yep. Yeah, it's very pleasing to the eye, and it's making my mouth water too, Jason. I love hot sauce in addition to truffle, and my favorite truffle product right now is I think it's called Sabatino is the brand, but they make a black truffle powder that you can sprinkle on anything. On popcorn. Hell yes. It's like $15 and a little bit goes a long way. So it's actually a great product to have if you're a fan of truffles because you can sprinkle it on anything as Jason's describing. So you could have your own hot sauce and then add that on top. But um, there is a big difference between different brands of truffle. There's different types. There's white truffle and black truffle. There's there's so many factors. I love trying different truffle products. So I agree that getting one that's kind of blended together perfectly is a different experience. But if you want to have like consistent access to truffle and be able to 
play around with it in a lot of different ways, that black truffle powder is a great investment. That is not the brand that I was going to shout out, though. The brand is kind of a opposite end of the spectrum. It's a beauty brand called Trey Stique. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. It's like Trey, which in French is very. And maybe it's a Trey Stick because all of their products are in stick shape. It's makeup and it's very convenient because it has like every product or almost every product, I should say, has a magnet on it, which will connect them all together. So they're all stick shaped. So they have mascara, eyeliner, they have concealer and foundation and bronzers. I think they have a blush, which I haven't tried, and a few other products. And with the magnets, they'll all click together. So they're very convenient. And it's easy because they're all similar shapes. Oh, I also have one for the eyebrows that will define the eyebrows a bit. But that's not the only thing that makes it cool. They also have like a two-in-one design where on one end of the stick is the product. So, you know, let's say like the eyeliner. And on the other end, there will be an applicator or a tool. So you can take that and apply it. So like you'll apply an eyeliner, for example, and the tool on the end will be a brush so you can blend it in or a little sponge. And the concealer will have a sponge on the other end so you can blend it in. It's really neat. Actually, one of my favorite of the tools is on the mascara. The opposite end of it has a crimping tool, I think is what it's called. So it'll you can use it on your eyelashes to shape them a little bit before applying the mascara. And that's super handy. So you kind of have these like two-in-one design and then all of the tools twist off so you can easily clean them. But of course, what makes them neat is that they have great ingredients as well. So they're cruelty-free as well. They're mess-free. They're lightweight. They come with a little traveling case depending on how you buy them. You can buy them like on their own or in packages. I got from the brand. It's called the Essential 8. And it's pretty cool because it allows you to choose a bunch of different products and you get the case as well. So uh, you go through like this little process and it's a little on the pricey side, but I've, I've had them for a few months now and found them really convenient. And I like to keep my makeup on the simpler side. I like to just kind of easily grab what I need to travel or grab it if I'm just trying to apply my makeup really quickly. So I think all things considered, the cost is pretty good. It's $175 to get these eight products. And now that's like almost all the products that I use, especially because the tools are included. I don't even need to use some of my sponges and brushes and stuff. And um, I just really love them. They're just great all around. They're made in Italy. So I think that's also part of why the price is on the high. They feel high-end makeup, but also don't feel too high-end. Like for me, I'm not generally a high-end makeup person. I like I like like the $20 product range. Um, they have free returns and exchanges. They have a 60-day warranty. They have free shipping over $30. Like they kind of check off a lot of the boxes. And their whole mission is to make shopping for makeup online easier. High-performance products, cruelty-free. And 
like a less mess and all this. So they pretty much checked off like every box I could possibly ask for. I've really been enjoying them. I wanted to give them a big shout out and go into detail. I know we have a lot of women listening, so that might be a good fit. And I've been like looking for an opportunity to bring them up. We haven't really done anything on beauty since we had Sunny on our show. So if you haven't listened to that and you're curious about makeup and skincare and beauty routines, you should definitely listen to our episode with Sunny, which we'll link to in the show notes. We'll link to Trace uh, Steak if I'm or Trace Stick, whichever way you're supposed to pronounce it. I guess I should ask them, or maybe just go on their YouTube channel. We'll link to Truff Hot Sauce, and we'll link to Kathleen Smith and her book. And anything else that we've mentioned today, and just as a heads up to each of you listening, we do typically use affiliate links whenever we can. And we've been trying actually to uh, offer alternatives to Amazon, but some of the products like Truff Hot Sauce, it's easier for us to link to Amazon. So if you find it elsewhere, we've purchased products like Truff in their store. I'm going to link to the Tray Stick website and not their Amazon, although they are available on Amazon too. I'm going to link to Kathleen's book on IndieBound because that's one of our favorite uh, resources right now for getting books. So we encourage you to look outside of Amazon, but if it's convenient to you, I think everything we've mentioned today can be found on there as well. So yeah, for the listener, if you want to connect with us, we always love hearing from you, whether it's suggestions for new episodes, comments on existing episodes, or if you want to review this on Apple Podcasts. We always love those. We've gotten some really lovely, lovely reviews lately. Thank you so much if you have done so. It's very easy to do, and we will link to how you can review this show very easily. And on all the social networks, we are easily found at Wellevator. It's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. And you can also email us directly, which is hello at wellevator.com. We are on all the major networks and going to be posting some new content, especially on our YouTube channel, our Pinterest board, Maybe tomorrow, Whitney, maybe we should do a little TikTok, huh? Because we're going to rendezvous with the farmer's market. So maybe maybe we'll give the people a little bit of TikTok action, eh? Sounds good to me. I love me some TikTok. We know this. Whitney's the TikTok queen. So until next time, dear listener, thank you for being with us through the deep dive of this episode. We appreciate your listenership. And as always, thanks for getting uncomfortable with us. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.